0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this session, The Power of Women and Girls at All About Women today. We're very honoured to have as our speaker, uh, Lema Bowie. Um, I'm Anne Mossop, I'll be chairing the session this afternoon, um, and there'll be, Lema will speak and there'll be time for some questions and discussion at the end. Lema is an African peace activist whose work as a leader of the Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace was a key part of ending the Second Liberian Civil War in 2003. She was the founder and executive director of Women, Peace and Security Network Africa, of which she is now a trustee. She's written a memoir, which is an absolutely wonderful book that I would recommend to you all, Mighty Be Our Powers, How Sisterhood, Prayer and Sex Changed a Nation at War. And her work was also the subject of the award-winning documentary, Pray the Devil Back to Hell. She's been honoured with numerous awards for her work, including as one of the distinguished recipients of the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize. Please welcome her to the stage, Leymah Bowie. (laughs)
1: Thank you. It's truly an honor for me to be here in Australia. I, my partner Jay and I traveled 29 hours <laughs> to get here. And midway in the flight, I said, Jay, if you weren't here, I'll be screaming hysterically, when will we reach? Because it was the longest flight, I usually pride myself in the fact that I jumped off a flight, put on a suit, look pretty, and gave a speech. <laughs> Honestly, and Australia won. <laughs> I could not do any of those things yesterday. I'm really, really happy to be here today. I'm, I'm truly honored that you decided to invite me Today's this event all about women, to talk about something that I'm passionate about, the power of women and girls. I want to say thank you, and I want to recognize at this moment my Liberian community, if you're here, shout. Woo-hoo! And I would also like to recognize And say thank you to the people of Australia for welcoming close to 10,000 Liberian refugees in your country. When we came, we thought we would probably see 10 or 20 when they told me 10,000. I said, wow, war has a way of spreading people out. I'm grateful to God also for being here because it's by His grace and mercy that I find myself on this journey of peace activism and rights advocacy. I tell people most times that there are many intelligent women out there. There are many that could represent the world and the voices of women and girls, especially in Africa, but He chose me, and I'm grateful and I'm humbled. Today, I've been asked, like I said, to talk about the power of women and girls. And most times, I spend time thinking through my speeches because I don't want people to go on the internet and see that she gave this speech and she gave it to us also. <laughs> so it's a lot of work giving the rate that I speak, trying to be creative. But I also try to put practical examples in my speeches because it is in that way people who are so disconnected from some of the reality of my world can really come close to understanding what my world is. And my journey to the women's movement in Liberia and in Africa have taken me to different places and I've seen different things. Some of those things have entertained me And sometimes, I've gotten angry, and other times, I'm just silent. And for those who know me, when I'm silent, that's the moment of confusion. Because my mouth runs, and before I try to catch it, it's gone. (laughs) And so, when I'm silent, my assistant Hafiza says, she gets the jitter. What is she going to do next? Is she going to pull a gun? Lord, what is she going to do? That? I've never seen this woman silent. <laughs> and one of our other colleagues said, when she's silent, just say Deuteronomy 2:4 and the valley shall be filled. Whether that's the verse in the Bible, no one knows. <laughs> but I'm rarely silent. But some of the places I've been have kept me silent. I joined the women's movement with great caution. You know, all of the stereotypes that we've heard, women are gossip, they're not good at working together, PhD, pull her down. I actually cried when I was told that I'm going to work with a group of women. (laughs) No, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then one woman pulled me aside and said, stop that crap. You can, you have it in you. And I said, really? She said, yes, I know you can do a great job. I had worked prior to that time in a male-dominated environment where peace building was done. I worked for the church. And we did a lot of healing and reconciliation workshop. My first assignment was with child soldiers, ex-child soldiers. And my second assignment was working on a project to do peacebuilding and trauma healing with Charles Taylor Security Apparatus. So Charles Taylor is the former president of Liberia who is credited for the war, if there's anything to give credit for. His army was vicious, his police had no training, he had special death squad units, and child soldiers were people he used to commit some of the worst atrocities. So in the early years of my work, I worked with this group of people. And when we were on the first, one, I started working with the child soldiers, First thing first, a young woman, slim, pretty, even though I'm a little bit fat now, but I'm still pretty, but I was prettier then. <laughs> Walk into a room, and they, even the child soldiers would say, wow, you look so good. Many proposals for marriage. <laughs> one was so keen on getting married to me that he will move the world, he will do this, he will do that, but the point I tried to make was that no one... Amongst those young people saw anything intelligent, what they saw was a woman, let alone anyone with power, and we'll talk about that later. Then I started working with the security apparatus, people who I thought knew a little bit more or had a little bit of intelligence. And I was the only female civilian on a team of civilian trainers. Every time I walk into the room, someone's phone is ringing, answer. Every time I walk into the room of security personnel, they either took me to be the caterer or the logistician. And then I I, I always enjoy the moment where after lunch, when they've eaten, I'll walk into the room, take the marker, stand by the flip chart board, and start lecturing. And then their mouths would drop open because for most of them, this, were the, this was the first time they would see a woman training. I worked in that world, observed many things, but I never, as part of that world, I too was a part of not really paying attention to women and women's issues because I was so caught up in this male world. We went to Northern Liberia to do a piece of job, And I was leading the team. That was one of my first trips as the head. So I had a driver, I had a staff of all men that I was commanding. But it would be the lesson for me that has accompanied me from 1999 up to this point. We got to that village and they found a house for me that was run by one of the local NGOs. And quickly I made friends with the caretaker who was an older woman. We chatted, talked about my children. If you want me to get, if you want, get me started. Ask me about my six children. I can go on telling you stories about them. And when she was about to go home, she said, Madam, will you please lock, double lock your door and make sure you prop something at the back of your door? And then I turned to her and said, why? She said, because my boss is a known rapist. He's known for forcing himself on women when they come to stay here. And in this community, the Liberians will understand he's known as the commander of dirty way. But in normal English, he was the commander of bad attitude. That made me a light bulb went off in my head. And I decided I would observe the women and girls because this boss was the head of a humanitarian agency. And if he was a known rapist and a known um, sex predator, whatever you want to call him, there must be a serious problem amongst the women. And that community was host to refugee women from Sierra Leone. So my eyes were wide open, observing this community. And the next morning, we saw this little girl, my driver is taking me to to, to look at the room we'll do the training in, and she's standing changing five US dollars to Liberian dollar. And then my driver said, see her, acting like she has so much money. And I said, do you know her? He said, yes, that's the thing I slept with last night. I said, really? He said, yes. I asked him, you're about 50, something going to 99. And that girl looks like she's no more than 15. And then he said to me, boss lady, those are the ones that are correct. During the workshop, I would move around talking to refugee women, and the story was the same. Sex for relief. I left that community in a daze. Because for me, it would have been easier to see the men in the community exploit women rather than those who had gone in the name of doing good and humanitarian aid, exploiting young women and women. The question that kept playing on my mind, because that was not the first or second community that I would encounter, is there no end? Can women not do something to change this situation around? Why is it always violence and abuse and sex and sex and sexual abuse? Why is it always us? Why is this war being fought on our bodies? Those questions kept me awake many nights and many days. We went to another place to do a workshop and we asked for an example of nonviolent strategy to end a particular situation. And once we got to that place of asking that question, a young lady stood up and said to us, I have a story from my village. And this is the story of one of our villagers marrying a girl from another village, brings her into our community, and beats her every day. That culture was strange to us. Because he had moved back home with his wife in our village, no one beat their wives. One woman decided, this is a trend, and if we do not stop it, our men will pick it up. So the first time the girl is beating, this woman talks to her husband, he said, mind your business. The second time, she called the women to a meeting, and the women said, that's a private issue. The third time this woman's leg is broken, this woman called the women together and said, we have to do something, it's going to be us next. They went to the men and said, the next time this happened, we will take action. Of course they were toothless bulldogs. Of course women are never taken seriously when anything they have to do or say. So the next time it happened, and the women decided we will use this tradition that has been used to abuse us as a means of confronting this problem. So there's something called a secret society where we come from. There's a Sunday. In the Sunday... Men cannot go there. It's a women-only space. So that morning, the women decided we're going into the Sunday, and the men laughed. Early the next morning, by 5 a.m., all of the women gathered with the female chief and walked straight to the Sunday. No babies, no husband, no children. By 6 a.m., men were waking up no hot water. <laughs> by 7 a.m., men were waking up children were crying for breakfast. By 12 noon, all hell had broken loose. (laughs) They started arguing amongst themselves, who was responsible, someone should have taken action, and they called their own meeting. By evening time, they called the women and vowed that it would never happen again. When this girl told me this story, I was so excited that I used that story in every training for women, everywhere I went, But I played that story in my mind every day. And so at one point, I'm not looking at the abuse of women anymore from a hopeless perspective, but that story energized and rejuvenated me, and my imagination was running with me. Those were the days I did not own a computer, so my laptop was a notebook. I would scribble ideas in there and I was looking into magazines to so read stories of positive things that women were doing. And then we started working with this group of fantastic women, pastors, wives, and I'm using this story, and this story becomes the revolution for the work that we were doing. In 2003, a group of us, five of us, just armed with our conviction in 10 U.S. dollars, decided we would do something to change the situation in Liberia. I'm armed with that story. If those women could challenge the structure of patriarchy, if they could use a structure that had been used to abuse and oppress them as a tool for getting what they want, we too can do something. So we started this famous Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace. But you see, when we started the Mass Action for Peace, just a few of us had read Gandhi, a few of us had read King, but the, mass, the vast majority of the women had not read anything. And we stayed in, we started this protest. Every day someone gave us one crazy idea, we took it with enthusiasm. But what was important was that as we gather in that space, each and every one of us as women began to see the power that was within coming out. I did not know that I could stand up and talk down the speaker of the Liberian parliament. But when when we gather as women, that power came from just the presence of women doing something to change their communities together. When I look at some of those women who were advocating and doing activism with us, I smile because two, three years before, they could not speak up. But these were the women in a rural community who was rising up one at a time, Mobilizing women, and in three months, we had over 10,000 women in 15 locations in Liberia saying no to war. The power that we had seen in those women was something that we can never, I, I cannot describe. It's been exactly 10 years, this April, since we did that work to transform Liberia. Two months into our, our three months into our, advocacy, a peace agreement was signed. The typical thing was that women should go back then, celebrate the peace, and go and sit down. We were not ready for that. <laughs> we told ourselves we will constructively interfere in the politics of this nation. <laughs> we were into disarmament, taking guns from the fighters. We were into different things. We were on the international community case, as we say in our local language, like white on rice. We will not give them their, we could, we would not give them their peace. One of the days, just before elections, we had done our analysis and we knew that the elections would sway in a way that would not be favorable to women if we didn't do special campaign to mobilize women to vote. I had gotten invited to speak at an international gathering of elections experts from the U.S. and other parts of the world. And I told them, these are the signs. And they said, well, we can't do anything. The money we have is 10 days for voters' registration, and after 10 days, nothing. Five days into voters' registration, 10 business districts, they could barely get women registered. The socialization of a lot of the Liberian women had been, the politics was a male thing. They simply put, it is the people's thing, not our thing. So it was easy for them to work for peace, but they didn't see any power within themselves to change the political dynamics. We told ourselves if we sit again, we will lose out. It's time for us to harness our powers. We got gather, up, gathered a team of 250 women, 25 in each session. Some other women's group took women to the other part's rural community in Monrovia, 10 business districts we had less than five days. We registered 7,425 female voters in five days. (laughs) The group that went around the country did their own share. By the time we put together the number of registered voters, we had 50 plus one more women registered than men. That we made Africa's first female president is not rocket science. (laughs) After the elections of President Sirleaf, we saw a new wave, a wave of some of the issues from the past coming back. I remember going to an event with one of our justices of the Supreme Court. And as we sat in that event, he came and sat next to me, cleared his throat like he was about to give a verdict, and said, little girl, you are very smart you're very intelligent, and you're very beautiful. I suggest that you start doing those things that our mothers did. Open an orphanage and take your mouth out of politics. Um, Start a sewing school. Do something that women do, decent women. But don't get involved in all of this political thing. I said, thank you, sir, for your opinion. (laughs) And I'm glad that I'm not your daughter. (laughs) I changed my seat, but that energized me more to start a new revolution a revolution of bringing young women ahead because with that kind of mindset, we needed to do something to bring the young women on. In 2007, we started a new kind of work, working with girls in something called the Girls' Transformative Leadership Initiative, going into communities and really just trying to get these young girls to see that deep down inside, there is some hidden power that you do not have to be sitting up there in order to exploit your power. From 2007 till today is a journey that I've never regretted. Because in some of the communities that we've gone to, we've seen transformation of young women who never really had the outlook of any future beyond getting married early or any future beyond going to college. There is a young student now as part of our scholarship program who is the first in her family to go to university. Her mother is in the village. Her brother came to town, and he does all jobs, and he's married. So when we gave her a full four-year scholarship to go to university to become a professional nurse, she moved to town and moved in with her brother. A few months ago, she walked into my office and said, Madam Bowie, I'm having problems. I need a place to stay. I said, why do you need a place to sit? She said, first thing first, my brother is very upset that I've chosen to go to school rather than to get married. What the hell do you think you will achieve? No one in our family have ever gone to college, let alone you, the girl. So to really push his point and push her further to go back to the village, her mother bought a mattress that she used to sleep in the other room in his house. He and his wife seized the mattress. So she sleeps on a thin sheet of cloth on the bare floor, he will not give her money for transportation. Some days, no food, nothing. But the point is, your destiny is to go back to the village and get married. College is not your destiny. She stirred him down and said, if no one in our family did it, I am going to do it. Her resolve has brought us to, brought us to the place where we formed A lodging for her, she continues to go to school. But from community to community, we see girls resisting early marriage. We see girls resisting the temptation of being prostitutes versus going back to school. It's happening one girl at a time. Each of these young women have realized that the power to transform my life first and to transform my community lies within me. And today, I've come to Australia just to let all of us in this room know, because, you know, most times when you talk about these things, they seem so far away. Oh, this is Africa. Oh, these girls are suffering. Oh, it's so pathetic. I was in Texas once, and because I dress like this, sometimes people are fooled. You know? (laughs) Especially young people, they tend to think, well, she's just an African. And what they've been taught in school, I'll tell you quickly, something. I went to New Orleans as part of the Nobel thing. Everywhere I go to speak, I want to meet with children. So, Ninth Ward, New Orleans. And the first class came, there were eight children between the ages of eight and nine. Miss Lima, question, do your people sleep in beds? (laughs) Yes, we do. And then the next group came, Ms. Lima, do your people drive car? Yes, we do. So by the time they're 15, 16 years old came, the first person raised her hand, Ms. Lima I said, for the record, <laughs> I do not sleep in tree. <laughs> I do not have a tiger for pet. <laughs> I do not ride a donkey to work. <laughs> I own an I own a SUV. And as you can see, I do not have a tail. <laughs> One of the little girls said to me, Miss Lima, I'm so embarrassed and I'm glad you're not my mother. I say, you missed out. <laughs> but people get fooled because of the concept of the African woman. They are raped, they are abused, they suffer, so there's this syndrome in the media across the globe. Six children on your back, breast sagging, begging both, no intelligence. So I go to Texas, and this girl came to me and said, "Miss Lima, um, when you come to Texas or places like America, I'm sure you're amazed by the big buildings. <laughs> I said, no, honey. I'm not amazed by the big buildings. I'm amazed by what is beneath the big buildings. That's what I've trained my eyes to see. The looming poverty, the single mother struggling to make things and meet children in the streets. That's what I've trained my eyes to be amazed by and you sit in this audience, come to something called All About Women, and you're asking yourself, what can I do? It's easier to write a check, but what is not easier to do is to go back home and sit and say, where is my power? Is it in teaching a little Aboriginal child to read? Is it in putting together something for some slum community here? Is it working with migrant community to understand the concept of women's rights since they've come to this big world and this great country? What is my purpose? Because each and every one of us in this room, as women, have that power in here. Somebody said once, if Rosa Park had thought twice about sitting on that bus, she would still be standing. What are you thinking about? What power do you have that the world is waiting to see explore, that you're still sitting on? What power have you found that you are exploring and some girl or some boy out there is waiting to encounter you so that they can reach out and find the best? You see, this woman standing here was not always a talkative, she was not always assertive from an abused relationship, a single mother of many children, no self-esteem, no self-confidence. People, people, people who believe that even at your worst, you have that power in you as a woman, as a boy, as a girl, to do something stepped out, held my hand, and I stand tall today. I'm on a journey, a journey to work with young people and women across Africa, in Europe, America, Asia, and wherever I'm needed. That journey is to help all of us see that with our power, as women and girls specifically, we can turn this upside-down world upright. Thank you.